junctures from Liverpool, England. People all over the world are just beginning to talk about the Beatles. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. One, two, three. Hello, my name's Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harrison. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. When I wake up early in the morning, lift my head, I'm still yawning. Joining me on the show today are Kenneth Pattengale and Joey Ryan, the talented duo known as the Milk Carton Kids. With their harmonious melodies and introspective songwriting, the Milk Carton Kids have entranced audiences around the world with their music. In this episode, we'll explore their favorite Beatles albums, get their thoughts on the recent Get Back documentary, and learn how the Beatles have influenced their lives and work. So get ready for a captivating conversation as we delve into the world of the Milk Carton Kids and their love for the Beatles. Kenneth and Joey, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing? Oh, great. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Of course. It's an honor to have you guys on. I was just listening to your new album, I Only See the Moon, and it's phenomenal. So congratulations on the release. Uh, there's just so much to talk about. And you know, I also can't wait to talk about the Beatles, since I think you're big fans of them. Who are they? <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't it everybody... I mean, isn't everybody a big Beatles fan? I will say, for some reason, we were just in a festival in Texas, and uh, we just got it in our heads to listen through a bunch of the Beatles albums on the drive uh, from the hotel out to the festival and back through uh, the most insane lightning storm that we've ever been in. And, um, and it's lasted me for these past weeks. And I swear it's not in preparation for this podcast, but I've been listening to only Beatles um, for the past few days. Um, and uh, it's, it's fun because uh, you can kind of, you know, we got exposed to it as kids <clears throat> and you can kind of go back to it at different phases of your life and like glean new things and different things from it every time, especially like after we've become musicians now. Um, it, it's, it's one of the bands that I kind of gain more and more appreciation for the more and more music I try to make. <laughs> and then you go back and listen to these recordings that, you know, you think you know backward and forward, but you hear something new every time. And, and, and kind of every time I'm just shocked by, um, all, like, almost how perfect everything is. Uh, all the choices and uh, all, the, you know, the, the conviction in every performance and every part. Um, it really, like... It makes me feel it's really humbling as a person who makes music recordings <laughs> to uh, to go back and listen to what they were doing all in such a short period of time. So yeah, big Beatles fans. To answer your question, and, and when was the first time that you heard their music? As mm. a little kid, you know. Yeah, a little kid. Yeah, my parents had all the CDs. 
in the in the late eighties and nineties. I don't know when CDs were coming out, but they quickly got <laughs> all the all the Beatles albums that they had probably had on vinyl and lost or thrown away and got them on CDs. I don't. I guess it's to the point of the question, but I can't remember a time where there weren't any Beatles in yeah. my life. I think that's the way that it works. Yeah. My dad's favorite album was Rubber Soul, I think. That's the one we listened to the most around the house. Ours, my mom's too. Oh. But it's also my favorite album. Oh. Is Rubber Soul not everybody's favorite Beatles album? I don't know. Is that what history has proved out? I guess, Jack, you would know. You've yeah. talked to the most people. Ask the expert. If I were going to, <laughs> I, I mean, and I assume that this podcast is a deep dive so we can do it, but if you just wanted to, like... I wanted to send the bat signal. Rubber Soul is the best Beatles album. Best. Oh, that's a different is question that, the, that is it most people's favorite. Best and or most people's favorite. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, I feel like that's definitely a common answer. Mm. Interesting. I, yeah, I didn't know that. I mean, between that, Revolver, and Abbey Road, I feel like are the most I common. Didn't know, I didn't know Rubber Soul was everybody's favorite. That's cool. There's But that's like a mad... The people that listen to this podcast are Beatles fans, right? Sure, yeah. That's the idea. Yeah. So nobody's going to learn anything from me when I say this. <laughs> you never know. But <laughs> that is the like magic point of the Beatles, right? Because like, they recorded and put out Help earlier in the year, and then they wrote, recorded, and put out Rubber Soul all in the course of like a couple of months in late 1965, and the difference between the albums is like the skiffle band that predates it and the Beatles that we all know and love with like all the maturity of the performances and choices and execution. And it's like, but it's usually when you see that in a band, there's like a year's period in between years long where they like figure it out, but you can, but this happened like in an instant, like the light bulb changed and we have evidence of it. I feel like that's why it's the most common answer. Because then after that, it gets, like, it gets weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It's just the recording of the egos of four wildly rich, strange people. Whereas Rubber Soul, well, it's like before they're let out of the box, eh? I don't think you're supposed to say anything even slightly mean, Kenneth, on this podcast about the Beatles. <laughs> I don't think that, Is that mean? I don't, what did what, I say? It wasn't nice. Well... You said it was recordings of I their egos. I think it's aligned with the truth. Oh, okay. See, Jack knows what I'm talking about. All right. I think George would agree with you for sure on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rubber Soul is an interesting album. I mean, that's really when they start talking about growing up and maturing and when they start talking about, you know, women that have jobs instead of just girls that want to... You know, they want to hold their hands, you know. <laughs> Women that have jobs. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's that's really they... funny. Yeah, right. Yeah, she had to work in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. He didn't seem to have much of a job at that time. Right. <laughs> he just passed out of the bathtub. Yeah, you know, I, I always thought that was a weird song. Norwegian Wood. Yeah. Okay, Why? Well, well, because he slept in the bathtub, you know, like, yeah. why not on the rug? Or is that just a British way of sleeping, saying he slept in the bathroom? Like, do they not call the, the bathroom the bath sometimes? 
You know, that's a good point. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I always pictured him sleeping in the tub, to be honest, but now that I think about it, he just says to sleep in the bath. What if he said he, what if it was actually there's like an incredible bathhouse around the corner, like a <laughs> fancy spa, like <laughs> the bath? Anything's possible. But isn't that song about him cheating? Yeah, I've heard that. And then he tried to disguise the lyrics so that his wife wouldn't really know. Yeah. Right, so you can't really trust. <laughs> what? Well, well, yeah, I've heard that story, but I've also heard an alternative version where the girl is a lesbian, and that's why she doesn't sleep with him. No. And that's why he burns no. down the See, house. See, that's the ego, that that's the ego of it all. Cheating. <laughs> that's the ego of it all. She didn't sleep with me. She must have been a lesbian. <laughs> no, that's Otherwise. not the ego. That's just his wife says, "Are you cheated on me?" And then he says, "No, she's a lesbian." <laughs> you know? Oh uh, yeah, okay. That would be something they'd try to get away with in the '60s. <laughs> but also, then kind of it doesn't matter because in the '60s wasn't it the like the decade of love? weren't they? Wasn't everybody just swapping partners? Not yet. '65, not yet, not uh, quite yet. '69 is the summer of love. Mm. I don't think so. I think the summer of love is somewhere between 1966 and 1968. Mm, 69. Yeah, the summer of love was 1967. <laughs> so how did you guys both start making music together? How'd you how'd you get into this? Oh well we were both trying to attempt solo careers here in Los Angeles and then we were in playing in the same venue and we met each other and we thought, well, why don't we play try playing together? And then we played together and it was way better. So then we've just done that ever since. It's like a regular John and Paul story. Well yeah, I mean I was just about to say when you guys sing together, you emit a very John and Paul or even like Phil and Don Everly kind of vibe. Are mm. they influences on you? Yes. Oh, yeah. You mean as a duo are two of the greatest songwriting teams and duos in of all time <laughs> influences on us? I would say yes. Yes. <laughs> I would say yes. And, we, you know, as a harmony duo, like... That's the other thing about every time I go back to the Beatles as a harmony duo, you know, we get like kind of flatteringly compared to the people, the duos that people think of as harmony duos like Simon and Garfunkel or Everly Brothers or Leuven Brothers and stuff. But uh, like they'll, and, and then whenever people talk about harmony bands, they'll talk about like the Eagles or something. And I know Beatles fans, like Beatles people will talk about the harmonies of the Beatles, but. God, I think every time I go back and listen to Beatles now, having been in a harmony duo for 12 years, I think they're the best harmony band ever. The 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 parts, like the parts, and then just the performances and the, the blend of their two and three voices is like, I don't know why they don't get more pigeonholed even or identified as like a, like a harmony singing band like the Eagles or something, but they were, they're the best ever, in my opinion. Yeah, I wonder about that too, because you're right, the Eagles, B-52, 
Bee Gees and Beach Boys are always included on those lists of like best harmony groups of all time. But if you listen to songs like Yes It Is or This Boy or like Because, it's just astonishing of what they can mm-hmm. do with their voices. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's all there. The <clears throat> As far as influences go, you know, they're all influences. And then I've always had a, kind of a not trouble answering that question when people ask us because the answer is just unequivocally yes when it comes to all of those people. But then also, um, I'm certainly not, and I don't think Joey was ever like one to sit down and learn the music of the people we listen to or we love. That wasn't like part of our working out our musical muscles. For me, it was more certainly always trying to write songs and then I can I can trace so many influences through my own music when I listen to it and I pick up on a phrase or I go and listen back to something I listened to 20 years ago and I'm like, oh, that's where that tonality became true or that's where that phrase became true. But never sat down and and did it, um, which is funny because when somebody... like. I never feel like an un, influence greater than another. It's just kind of all up there in the soup. Um, but then as I think about it, it's kind of ironic in this conversation because I think literally like John and Paul, their entire existence is having like direct inspiration. It seems like most times, more than not anyway, them writing the song was like directly often like a result of them saying like, well, we want to write a, we want, we just like listen to this Motown hit all summer. We want to write that. Like if you go and, and read the story about the genesis of these songs, it's like literally direct reaction to a decade of music that they're, they're exactly the opposite. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I think that the, a, a larger general audience, when they think of like the monolithic thing that is the Beatles, like actually it's just a, they're just kind of a mirror of all this music for a decade. Yeah. That I, I, mean, I don't know if they'd have anything if they weren't actually taking all of their influences directly in real time and sort of funneling them through their own pen and, and through their own performance in I a way. I think that's how most musicians work. I think we, uh, you know, I mean, Paul Simon's on record over and over saying all he ever wanted to do was be the Everly Brothers. Right. He was literally, they were just trying to be the Everly Brothers and to the... Conan O'Brien has a, a a great speech about how uh, you know all he wanted to be was uh, Johnny Carson, and be, because he couldn't, that you know, in his uh, limitations and shortcomings in trying to emulate his hero is wh- where he found his own identity. But so why for twelve years have we been agonizing over trying to like find out who we are and what we do? Why don't we just copy some people? Yeah, well, plenty of people say we do. <laughs> <laughs> So when you guys are writing songs, what are the biggest challenges that you face? I mean, you've been doing it for over a decade. Jeez, coming up with something original, which I just said, <laughs> we don't need to. Let's just, write, let's just write a song that's like, it should sound like yesterday. Mm-hmm. Should we just do that? It'll be called Tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe it goes, Tomorrow. The nice piano part behind it. You know how to play the piano? 
No, and that's what it'll make it our own. I guess so. Because I'm not the piano player that Paul is, we won't be able to make yesterday, and we'll make tomorrow. It is hard. The whole, the hardest. By the way, part, that's your, that's your audio, that's your soundbite right there. The whole, the hardest <laughs> part of it all. I wasn't listening to him because I, I was trying to think about yeah, what yeah. I was going to say. Um, the hard, the hardest part of it all is that is exactly that magic trick. There's, you know, before you've done something, it's the like, you have the drive to do something, and then it's really hard writing it and figuring it out and finding the truth and then you get to the other side of it and you've done something truthful and that feels good but all that area in between is just a like a vortex of hard work and self-doubt and hiccups <laughs> and failures and that that's the hard part as far as you know being a band yeah to me the hardest part is um every time i finish a song i feel like that's probably the last song i'll ever write and because it, you know, it feels like a little bit of a miracle that it happened, and you just can't assume that it's ever going to happen again because you feel a little bit <clears throat> out of, like, uh, a little bit like it's out of your control. That to me is the the worst part. And I know that you're supposed to just keep coming back to the notepad or the, you know, guitar every day and just wait for the muse and the inspiration to strike or whatever. But that's the hardest part, is how how often you sit down to write a song and just nothing, nothing happens. You know, talking about uh, sitting down and having inspiration strike you or even just trying to follow up your past work, have you seen the Get Back documentary? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was great. What did you guys think of watching them during their creative process? Very relatable. Oh yeah, perfectly relatable. It was nice to it was nice to see in such of a vast depth, you know, how how real that was as far as the dynamic because it's very relatable and a cautionary tale. The biggest my biggest thing about get back um or my the thing I related to most personally or liked most enjoyed about it was that life has get has clearly like got the better of all of them and they're in a pretty sticky spot and it's kind of crazy that they decided to put some cameras on themselves but it's a complete disaster until they invite Billy Preston over and then when he comes in it's like it's like it changed the weather in the room and all of a sudden you see them connect to music more and you see just the magic of music you you see it bloom in front of your eyes and I think the way that the first couple hours that documentary goes is that if there wasn't something from the outside that came in and did that for them, they weren't going to get there. It was over. They, you know, and that like, and so all that, there was a lot, I felt a lot of anxiety watching the beginning of it as interested as I was, but I was so grateful that something came in to level them because then all of a sudden you, you see the sweet spot of all of this stuff. And of course it wasn't, you know, it was at the end, it wasn't um, sustainable, I guess. But to me, that was the biggest thing is like you can see the evidence of the thing that actually saved it and and allowed the difference between when what they did was magic and when what they did was not. And it was and, and I love that that was um, I mean, you can say that it's Billy Preston, but. You know, Billy Preston is a in this case, a stand in for something that's 
kind of alchemical and happening in the air and not really definable and magical. You know, it could have been another thing that got them all on the same page. I'm sure there were many Billy Prestons throughout the years that would pull them out of their ego and back into their, like, magical place. Yeah, no, it's interesting you say that because, you know, as soon as Billy Preston walked in the room, you could see all of their eyes light up and they are all immediately thinking, like, this is exactly what we needed to give us a jump start. Well, yeah, remember when they're working on that one and George is like, well, I'll play whatever you want. And you're like, everybody knows. He's like, no, you won't. He's like, <laughs> yeah. you're being a dick because you're pissed and that's fine. And we get it because Paul's kind of being overbearing. But like that whole thing's a dead end. And then that was one of my favorite things that they showed actually was like, that's a, that is like whether, whether the guitar part has to get written for the song to come together or whether the song has to come together for the guitar part to get written seems like such a basic thing for a quartet to have figured out by that point and the fact that they're so far in and they're still arguing about stuff that we are like we argue about all the time and bit like young band as a young band you're like well i can't figure out what i'm gonna do until you figure out what you're gonna do and i just i would have thought that the beatles at that point in their career like would have had it together a little bit more to know like how these guitar parts are going like generally will come come together and they're still just totally clueless. It was really beautiful to see. I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean, like, they're still just so raw in their process of discovering their own music that they haven't fallen back into any, like, sort of formulaic processes or anything like that. And I think part of that is why it's messy and it looks like it could fall apart and maybe almost did. And then why it, you know, and then why it ultimately had room to become magical again was because they're still just discovering it, like, the kids that, to be honest, they were. I mean, they were so young, even though they were pretty far along in their career with each other. But that was really cool to see that they're just arguing about these pretty basic process-type things as though they're discovering them for the first time. Yeah, but my point is that in that moment, whether or not what you said is true... It's true. George wasn't ready to engage. In that moment, George was working something else out, and his way of dealing with Paul McCartney was looking him in the eyes saying, I'll do whatever you want. But he was actually with his soul saying, like, you're smothering me. Give me some space. Like, we have to do this differently. And the point being that that communication was never going to happen in that moment. And then when Billy Preston shows up, they all go just back into the tools that they know. Like, they just have to figure out Mm -hmm. without talking about it and without and with giving each other space and while finding the sweet spot and, and all of that. And that like, that that's, that was the side of it that interested me, even though what you're talking about, well, I agree. It's, it's, it's sort interesting. Of, it's kind of, a, it's, we're not saying different things. It's like, uh, nobody, you know, they have that conversation in the restaurant where you don't see them, but it's about like, which one of them is going to take the lead and become the leader. It's almost like, it's almost like nobody was stepping in and exerting their, influence or or like stamping the project with their identity that everyone else could react to and they needed someone to come in and just be themselves and maybe that's what billy preston did was he just came in and like i'm billy preston and they're all like yeah that that's a thing we can all react to and coalesce around and then and and be ourselves in that context you know you need like a a point person or a guy like a north star to to even feel like you can get anything off the ground and it, it 
for some reason it wasn't any one of the four of them. There was some vacuum there. Now, do you guys have a dream collaborator or, you know, like you said, a, a point person to work with? You know, who would be who would be your Billy Preston? Oh, that's interesting. You know, not that you guys aren't getting along in the studio or anything like that. <laughs> well, that's How did you know? <laughs> no, it's interesting you say that because um this on this record we just finished, um Kenneth, you know, stepped up and said like he he asked, you know, I want he said I want to be the producer of this record. We had either co-produced like just produced ourselves together without defining like which one of us would be the producer. Or then a couple, uh, uh, we worked with a producer, a good mentor of ours called Joe Henry. Um, but this time, Kenneth said he wanted to be the producer. And I think that actually it, it was our most productive and healthiest and most rewarding process we've been through in the studio. And probably for a similar reason um, to that, which is, you know, he asked basically, can I, can I come in and just step up and be the person that like, you know, provides that initial instinct of where of what the direction should be that we can then react to and shape and collaborate around um and and without that you know sometimes it's hard to know who's supposed to be the person to be the first one to step up and say this is what i think it should be for everyone else to react to because maybe you feel like you're overstepping or or you know whatever um but but somebody does need to be that person and i think you know in this case uh, it was a really good process probably because of that. Um, I think, you know, it can be, sometimes it can be either way between the two of us. Um, we haven't really talked about like an outside person that would come in and give us that spark before or that be that um, that creative North Star. Um, I don't know. We've always just wanted to engage with that process, I kind of think, between the two of us, you know. But in dream, so but we could still answer the question probably a little better in terms of dream collaborator. Uh, oh. Graham Nash. You know I, that that's a great one. I want to I want to sooner than later, and we should get this happening, Kenneth. I want to do a I want to make a recording with Robert Plant. We did a tour with him a couple of years ago, and and became friends of his. And I just think the world of him musically, and we have a very sympathetic musically and. Uh, He's obviously an idol, but like he's just very currently inspired and inspiring, and uh, so he's he's somebody that I think I'd really love to do something with. Oh, you guys would sound great with both of those legends, uh, you know, specifically Robert Plant. I mean, those albums with Alison Krauss have been unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so good. Now, if you guys could collaborate with a Beatle, who would that be? Like the ones available, or is this like a... <laughs> living, li living in? Yeah, enough? living, living or dead. Okay. Oh, well, George. Oh, George Harrison. Oh, interesting. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, well, I guess there was a one in four chance you would. <laughs> um, I never thought about that. They seem like untouchable gods to me in my mind. But I also have to say, so just. On the way here, I was listening to She Said, She Said, and uh, it made me think that I would want to play music with Ringo at some point. Oh, that'd be great, actually. He'd probably be down for that. We've never... We, we Yeah. We did one album and one tour with a drummer, um, and uh, 
so we have not played very much in our 12 years with a drummer and the like part of what I was saying about the conviction of all the choices like really comes down a lot to Ringo's choices on the drums um, so definitional like such a strong fingerprint on all of the songs that um, that's the kind of drummer I would like to collaborate with and see what would happen do you each have a favorite Beatle? Like Kenneth is is your favorite Beatle, Paul? Kenneth is Paul. Yeah, but that's just because they look alike. Well, there was that, but no, Paul. Um, I relate to Paul on at literally every level. He plays all the instruments. He's like, um, he's uh, his enthusiasm, almost sometimes cheesiness, like gets the better of him but I find that that was always the thing that gave him his identity and his style he has like such a strong instinct and not much of a filter to cover that up which is why I think he's as great as he is and that's always been the thing that like I simultaneously have felt blessed by and plagued with is that like I have a really strong instinct and direction that pulls me in and I can't help but be that um, and then I find just individually his taste for better or worse is the one that always aligned with mine. You know, when you hear his melodies and his musical instincts, they, they always felt so familiar to me mm -hmm. compared to all four, all the other three. Yeah. And maybe then not surprising that my favorite was always John. What, expand on that well I I think maybe it's that I felt like he was conflicted about the whole thing it's like he didn't really want to be there after a while he always looked like he always seemed like he was looking for a way out not necessarily of the Beatles but just of like the life that he ended up with because of being a Beatle that's what you relate to? You're looking for a way out? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, like a little bit of a sense of... Uh, the door's right there, my like, friend. <laughs> not, I don't, you know, like I said, he wasn't looking for a way out of the Beatles necessarily. I'm not looking for a way out of the Milk Carton Kids. In any case, we haven't had enough success for me to quit yet. But the, uh, I just mean a, a little bit of a sense of dissatisfaction with, like, the world and existence the way he finds it. And I don't mean to say that I'm, I'm like also probably one of the happiest people that you could ever meet, but you know, there, there, there's a, it, there's a sense of like searching that I get from him, uh, at all times, which I always identified with probably George too, but he's such a guitar hero that it's hard for me to relate to that. Cause I don't really play the guitar in that way. Yeah, I feel like John searching for himself is always at the root of the Beatles changes. Like, you know, once John got tired of Beatlemania right. and the more R&B sounding songs, he, he wanted to sound more Dylan and search for mm. meaning through spirituality. And then it was the acid and then it was mm -hmm. peace. And, you know, I, I don't think he ever really found himself. Right. right. Well, what does, doesn't everybody just agree what that's about? Is that not an obvious thing? What? Well, just that he was an incomplete person because he never had a mother and he was looking for that his whole life and would never be satisfied. Yeah, the whole time he was trying to fill a hole that 
could never be filled. Well, not in his lifetime anyway. So talk to me about your new album, I Only See the Moon. Is is this your rubber soul? And can you relate this to a, <laughs> a Beatles album for our listeners? Oh, I hope so. Well, we have a different thing. We have kind of the opposite of the Beatles, which is that we're we're very confident live band. Well, not that they weren't confident, but um, we. Uh, how do I say this in a way that sounds not self defeating? We've never. We've mostly been a live band. Yeah, we've mostly been a live band, and our albums, which we like and are proud of for certain reasons, like we kind of always felt like we never made a great record. Um, and the closest that we got was probably our first one because we weren't thinking about it. And then after that, the next closest one was this one we did with a whole crazy band, but just because we ended up putting so much more emotional and musical energy into the making of it than any of our other albums. But, um, the, the albums anyway, always kind of lacked a little bit of the spark of our live show in a, in a like a serious way and that was one of the things we were trying to solve for on this album and for a number of reasons we both think that we got there and it feels like our best album to date but the the way I relate that to the Beatles stuff is with Rubber Soul where it's that difference between um, finally hearing their like artistic voice on a record versus you know everything before that feels like kind of like raw parts that you throw into the soup or something um, and so I hope that this is the start of us making a number of records that feel kind of like elevated that way in so far as them representing a true and individual artistic voice. Um, but also with that said, I do like, I say that rubber soul is my favorite album, but also the most time that I've spent with Beatles recordings actually is all that earlier stuff. Um, I know every single record they made before that kind of backwards and forwards. And then probably the most time I ever spent with the Beatles was during the nineties when they started putting out the anthologies. That was like the sweet spot of when I was listening to them. So like even I was before this, I was watching um, Martin Scorsese's movie on George and listening to a few things. And I realized that like all of those early demos of them record just recording covers and working things out like i know all, all of those because i listened to all three of the anthologies backwards and forwards like way more than actual beatles albums. like i've never listened to the white album in my life but i've listened to all those other it's crazy and i'm really um i was very heavily influenced by all those that like i think again just as far as the way that it formed my musical language yeah, you know, there's this really cool thing about listening to an anthology where it almost feels like an MTV unplugged concert of the Beatles. Um, have you guys listened to the new remixes in, in the recent years? Mm-mm. I think that's what I've been... I think I would have mm. been listening to this week, actually. But they actually remixed in the last few years? Yeah, yeah, completely remixed. Did they ever put the vocals in the center channel? Yeah, yeah, they did. Oh wow, people must be losing their shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you just like pull up Revolver on, if you just pull up Revolver on Apple Music, it's like the 2022 mix. Oh word. See, I don't think I ever listened to that album either. I'm sure I know Revolver. Yeah, I'm sure I know the big songs on it, but I'm sure I don't know the 
not big songs on it. Oh, really? You know the you know the crappy Beatles songs when they write, <laughs> like it, in their heyday when they write. What did I say at the beginning of this podcast? When they write complete nonsense gibberish that's unlistenable, like the Piggy song. That's not the beginning. That I heard that's for the first album. time ever the other day, that's a and white I was like, album. "This should not exist. <laughs> this is awful." To eat their but so what's on Revolver? What's the big ones? What is on Revolver? What isn't yeah. on Revolver? Revolver is one of the I know One, what is so that I can get okay. excited about these mixes. Taxman. Taxman. Eleanor Rigby. Oh, that's a good one. I'm only sleeping. Oh, uh, we we recorded that. Which too. we recorded for the Howard Stern show. Yeah. Uh, Love to you here, there, and everywhere. Yellow submarine, which I know will be one of your favorites. Mm-hmm. She said, she said, which I was just talking about. Yeah. Good Day Sunshine, And Your Bird Can Sing, For No One, Dr. Robert, I Want oh, to Tell You, Got album. to Get You Into My Life, Tomorrow Never Knows. Yeah, yeah. That's Revolver, man. Okay, I might have listened to that one, because yeah. I know most of those <laughs> yeah, songs. Yeah, you know all those songs. Yeah, this is the album that uh, followed Rubber Soul. Oh, yeah. great. Oh, well, I'm going to listen to it on the way home, the new mixes. I got to hear these new mixes. 2022 mix. I love the old mixes. How can you? How do you find the old mixes now? Are those still on the streaming services? The mono mixes? Do you have to like... No, you have to buy them. Yeah, you have to buy the mono mixes. Although, they did release the mono mix of Revolver on the new uh, yeah. remix release. The mono mixes mm. aren't as good. I can, If you want a hot take, I'll give them <laughs> and you, I can piss off your audience. It's fine. Like If that's what you're into, I'm not afraid. <laughs> Well, we need some controversy, so... It, well, I know that everybody thinks that the mono mixes are, like, are more intentional on the band's part and on George Martin's part because of just the way that history went down, but speaking as a professional, <laughs> I can tell you that's not... You're going to pull rank here. That's not what's going on, and, like... Because when you listen to the mono mixes, they... The <clears throat> I love the hard pan... Of the stereo mixes, I have to say. Right. I Which, especially love them in headphones when you really totally get the sense Which, of if somebody were to make the argument that like some of those came out literally without any of the four Beatles hearing them, that that would somehow run afoul of their artistic vision, I don't think that's true. I think the Beatles is a band where... Literally, when you solo out every single thing that was recorded, it was recorded with intentionality and with purpose. And no matter where you put them, they serve their purpose. And, like, there could be a complete sweet spot that makes for the, you know, like, platonically perfect mix that is this, you know, blend of whatever's going on. But I don't think that they were necessarily thinking that way back then. I think they were thinking about how that was rendered in the room and then how it was rendered in the control room and and that they got there but they were operating on sort of like a different performance level wherein then when you split the mix in a totally crazy way where it's just bass and drums on one side it doesn't actually come at the cost of the recording mm-hmm. and the performance at all you know what i think is cool about uh watching for example get back is uh as making music in our era, I feel like uh, we were talking about influences before, right? And like who we're influenced by as writers, performers, singers, whatever. I feel like on the engineering front and on the mixing front, everything is about influence and referencing uh, 
you know, out referencing past albums and, you know, for tones and for vibe and, you know, what you want the drums to sound like. And you're like, oh, I want the, I want the snare to sound like, you know, the White Album. And I want the, the you know, I want the guitars to sound like uh, Fleetwood Mac or whatever. And like and audio engineer, like engineers that we work with in the studio are, I think, the the most commonly, most common like people in our uh, world that that really actively reference influences in that way. And when you watch Get Back, like those dudes just look like little scientists that are not referencing any like music in the past at all. It just feels like they're. It, I don't know if this is true, but what it looks like and like the things they're doing and the things they're saying, it sounds like they just have no idea what they're doing and they're just trying to be like, how do I make this sound like a guitar? And like using like science and electrical engineering, trying to make a guitar sound like a guitar. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't even seem like a creative process at all. And then those become like the platonic ideal for what a recording should sound like that we've been chasing for 70 years since. Or sixty years since, it's really cool. I agree. Those Abbey Road sound engineers really looked like mad scientists back in those days, too. Yeah. So, are your mono mixes coming out anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Our whole show is in mono. We sing into one microphone. That's true. Our live show is in mono. I guess our guitars, we do have a separate signals that kind of get blended into the mix, but mostly our, our entire live show is in mono into one microphone. Awesome. And where can people find information about your tour and upcoming concerts? Yeah, themilkcartonkids.com will have all the dates. We're going to be everywhere in pretty much the Western Hemisphere. Oh, and also uh, Australia. Uh, we're going to Australia in July, most of North America... In uh, through the fall, we'll be back in the UK in uh, January, and then more to come after that too. Yeah, big touring season. Awesome. Well, I'm gonna leave all of those links in the podcast description, and I'm going to tweet out the most controversial quotes from this podcast as promo as well. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, Cheers. of course. Nice to us. talk to you, Jack. It was fun. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. The Milk Carton Kids are some of my absolute favorite artists out there right now, and I'm definitely going to see them on the road, and you can too. Check out the links in the podcast description for their tour dates, their new album, and all of their social media. Be sure to follow us on all of your social medias at Beatles Earth, and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on any notifications about all of our new episodes. As always, I'll see you next time with a brand new episode. But for now, enjoy the Milk Carton Kids covering I'm Only Sleeping. Taking my time, lying there and staring at the ceiling, waiting for a sleepy feeling.
Shake me, leave 